about today. So his background is really more in physics. Um, he started out in physics in 2002 um, in Harvard, then was, uh, did his PhD at Penn, and went back to Harvard and was in the White's lab and did a lot of great work, which I'm sure a lot of us have read some of his, his work in the White's lab. And he's right now a professor at UCSF in bioengineering, which I have a fondness for, so that was where I got my PhD and did my dissertation work, so uh, a lot of understanding of what's going on in that department. And he's, he's doing some really fundamental, great work with droplets, uh, microfluidics, directed evolution. I think some of you have seen his most recent publication of PNAS, um, exactly the kind of work that we are very interested in doing here that integrates biology and uh, technology. And as someone who did a lot of microfluidics, I have the, a lot of respect for actually not just making really integrated devices, but doing really cool biology inside of those devices. So um, I think Adam's going to give a really inspiring talk here today, and we'll give a little bit of time for questions at the end. So uh, join me in welcoming Adam. Thank you for inviting me to present here. It's uh, not often that I get to present to uh, a large and successful company that's actually commercializing uh, the kinds of things that uh, research labs like mine are doing, so it's a great uh, privilege to be here. Um, so, yeah, I'm going to tell you a little bit about what my lab is working on. Uh, uh, generally speaking, my lab is really, uh, as Nick was saying, I'm a physicist by training. I, I did my degree in an area called uh, soft condensed matter physics, which is sort of a study of very esoteric systems like sand piles and uh, avalanches and foam and, and emulsions. And actually, that is the way that I found my way to this field of droplet-based microfluidics because um, droplets are, are emulsions. Uh, they're, they're mixtures of water and oil, and emulsions are one of the quintessential uh, 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 soft matter systems that physicists study. And that's what I studied in my PhD. So um, when I uh, decided to do a postdoc, I went to work with a guy named Dave Wakes at Harvard. And um, uh, Dave is one of the most famous people in that he basically is one of the founders of the field of soft matter physics. And I went actually to work with him to study um, colloids, which is a kind of another soft material. And he sort of steered me more towards applied uh, microfluidics and droplet-based microfluidics, I think at the time, recognizing that he really needed more people with a fundamental understanding of, of emulsions and how they work um, to make these devices work. And um, so that led to, to me learning this field of droplet-based microfluidics, which I then used to, um, to create my lab at UCSF. And really now, uh, I mean, we do a lot of basic microfluidic development, as I'll show you, but um, really, you know, the reason I'm at UCSF and not at, uh, you know, physics department is because what really excites me is uh, the application of microfluidics to chemistry and biology. And it's, it's really easy to be a physicist or engineer and come up with more cool tools that have absolutely no value. No value. Uh, and you know, the, the great way to, to safeguard yourself from that is to you know, immerse yourself in an environment where people are really thinking of, of problems, biological problems, chemical problems, and having you know, me having that skill set of the microfluidics it's just a very rich and invigorating environment, and you'll see uh, just a couple of applications where we're really trying to go beyond developing devices and into applying those devices to problems. So, um, and that's really the idea of my lab, high-throughput biology or ultra-high-throughput biology. It's this idea of how can we leverage microfluidics to do biology in a much, you know, a massive scale. So, um, the motivation for much of what we do 
is high-throughput screening, and I'm sure you guys are very well aware of the way that high-throughput screening is generally performed, mostly now using robotics. Um, and the idea here is that there are just a variety of problems in biology where uh, the, the right solution, the right path forward is just to do lots of experiments. And um, if you're going to do lots of experiments, the rate at which you can progress through those experiments and the cost of those experiments is going to scale with you know, your reactors, how many reactions you can perform, how quickly you can perform them, how much reagent you're using per, per reaction. And of course, hydrogen screening is valuable for a wide variety of applications across biology. So, um, you know, the, if you're trying to do a very large, exper a large experiment with a large number of reactions, the critical things that matter, again, are the volume of the reactors and the number of reactors you can use. And so if you want to do more, you know, really all you can do is go small, right? You can go from the, the microliter scale down to the nanoliter scale or the picoliter scale. And that's really one of the principal motivations for this field of microfluidics is that it's nothing more than fluid handling at a much smaller scale, the scale of uh, nanoliters and microliters. And um, by shrinking down the, the reactors, you can do a lot more reactions with the same amount of volume. Another thing that's valuable about microfluidics, and people like Steve Quake have pioneered this, is that um, you can actually integrate control into the microfluidic device. So the device can be uh, an array of chambers, but it can also have valves and other mechanisms embedded inside of it that allow you to move fluids around and do various operations on the fluids, akin to what you would do with a fluid handling robot in well place. Um, so that's, that's uh, the field of microfluidics, and it's been around now for over a decade. And there's a new field called droplet microfluidics, which is sort of the, the field we're in, I would say, is taking the next step, although these, in some sense, uh, are complementary approaches. And the idea of droplet microfluidics is that here, we don't want to use the channels as reaction containers. We want to use, um, we, we use the channels to control the flow of fluids, but the reaction containers are actually these small droplets of water embedded in an admissible oil carrier thing. So whereas here, the channels are the reaction containers, the, literally the reactions are being performed in a cube of, of um, a polymer. Here, the container is this small sphere of water embedded in oil, and you use the channels to flow the droplets through and do all of the various operations. And there's, um, you know, there's really uh, only one advantage to doing this, and there's a bunch of disadvantages, but that one advantage is so, is so paramount that it, it, it motivates the entire approach. And that is that you get about another factor of a thousand in throughput. So whereas typically you work at nanoliter scales and compartments uh, and droplets, you can go well below, well down to the picoliter scales and actually down to the femtoliter scales. You can actually do single molecule assays in these droplets. And people have done this with single enzymes uh, previously. So you get you get a lot more reactions because you're now you're now down about a million fold from the scale of a field being applied right in here from an electrolytic tank. So this is a way, basically, to add reagents and dilute simultaneously. So uh, making droplets, picoinjecting, diluting, this is sort of a complete toolkit for doing biology in the droplets, for making a million droplets and doing a million assays where I add reagents at different times. Um, now, at the end of that process, of course, you're going to have a million droplets. And if you've done a different reaction in every droplet, you now have this challenge of, how do I see what happened in this million droplets? You can't just easily image it with a microscope. It's very difficult to actually to image a million objects at the same time. 
So you need a way to, to image the droplets or measure what's happening inside of them. Uh, the other thing is that in a lot of these applications, like the work I'll tell you about today, in addition to finding specific drops in this massive uh, pack of drops, you would ideally like to recover specific drops, right? Uh, so maybe you do an assay that's interrogating a cell that can produce an enzyme that's really good at you know, digesting cellulose. And every, every cell in that emulsion has a different enzyme, and those enzymes all have different abilities to digest cellulose. Well, if you find that one droplet that has that cell that has the magical enzyme that digests cellulose, you want to get that drop out. You want to sequence that cell to figure out what the sequence of that enzyme was so that you can remake it, right? And so now, how do you go into this emulsion and pull that drop down? And so um, that led to uh, probably the last module that we use all, all the time, which is the sorting module. And you can think of this, for those of you who do a lot of flow cytometry, as flow cytometry for droplets. Um, some people call it flow dropometry or fluorescence-activated droplet sorting. It's the idea of taking a mixed emulsion like this and then sorting it to recover out the subset of drops that you want. And uh, it works pretty much exactly like a flow cytometer. Um, I have uh, my pack of drops that I flow through a channel, single file, and then I have a detector that's watching this region. So you can't see it, but there's a laser focused right there, and uh, that laser is exciting fluorescent dyes that are in the droplets. So the drops that have a fluorescent signal will, become, will emit fluorescent uh, light, and that will be captured by a detector that will then be uh, that will then determine how to sort the droplets. Now the sorting actually occurs by uh, by something called dielectrophoresis. These black things here are electrodes, and um, what happens is when a droplet is detected that, uh, that falls within the gating parameters that we want, the electrodes are activated, turning on an electric field that will then pull the droplets uh, into this channel. And it, it, it sorts basically by something called dielectrophoresis, where essentially you're, you're creating a dipole of the droplets with an uneven charge distribution, where there's more positive charge on one side than negative on the other. This leads to a force of attraction towards the electrode that basically pulls the droplet down. So it's a way to pull droplets down. So the way the sorter was designed was we make the drops always want to go up by default. So we design this junction here so that the natural path out is up. And you can see that because this channel is a little longer than this channel, which means this has a higher flow rate, which means this is the path the drops want to go down. But now by pulling on them with the electric field, we can apply another force that pulls them into the cube channel. So it's a simple, you know, sort. It sends the drops you don't want up, and it keeps the drops that you want uh, down. Uh, and we can, we can do this at around 2 kilohertz by uh, you know, using high-throughput uh, detection with fluorescence, and of course the electronics is very high-throughput. So uh, now I'm going to tell you, so those are the, the that, that's sort of the complete toolkit. We can make drops, we can encapsulate cells in drops, but I didn't show you, but that's just making drops out of a solution of the cells. We can add reagents by picoinjection and merger, and we can sort. And I'm going to show you how we've now taken all of these modules for a very specific goal, which my lab has recently developed, which we call PCR-activated cell sorting PACT. And um, the idea here is it's a new way to sort cells where you can sort based on nucleic acid. It's very reliable. So you might wonder, why would you want to do this? And um, there's actually an, an amazing number of applications where sorting would be extremely valued, but it's basically impossible with existing cell sorters. And that's because cell sorters, for the most part, fluorescence-activated cell sorters, 
require that you have a fluorescent antibody that will label your target cell in a mixed population. Now you can just flow those painted cells, those cells that have been painted with antibodies, through the cell sorter and sort based on fluorescence. So it all comes down, if you want to do reliable sorting with facts, it all comes down to having a good target for an antibody and having a good fluorescent antibody that labels that target. And that's extremely useful. Facts is used all the time. But there's just a lot of cases where you know having a target for an antibody and having a good antibody are not always true. And so what do you do then? And, and I'll just show you some examples of that. So in cancer, um, you know, there's this very simple question and hypothesis, which is perhaps in a tumor where which is a very heterogeneous environment, um, the cells that are the most dangerous, the most likely to, to lead to metastasis, have stem cell-like properties. They have the ability to uh, replicate without stop, they have the ability to differentiate into different tissues, uh, to induce angiogenesis, uh, all these hallmarks of cancer. And so how do I find within this tumor those cells that have stem cell properties? Well, if you don't have an antibody that labels a stem cell, there's not much you can do with a flow cytometer. But what we can do if we could sort based on nucleic acids is we could, we, we could look at pathways that are turned on uh, in cells that are stem, in stem cells, and we can sort based on the expression of genes in that pathway. Um, so that's a simple case where you'd love to be able to sort tumors based on stem properties, but it's absolutely non-trivial to do it currently with, with facts. Another case, another class of problems that's very useful uh, which is HIV and other infectious diseases where you have a cell that has some infectious material in it. Maybe it's a virus like HIV that has inserted into the cell genome. Maybe it's another cell that has a tuberculosis parasite inside of it, a malaria parasite inside of it. This is foreign DNA and RNA that lives within the cell, but there's no way to label with an antibody from the outside. So if I, if I just give you a bunch of cells and I say which of these cells are infected, I don't have a way to do that right now with flow cytometry. But if you could interrogate for the foreign DNA or RNA, you could reliably detect which cells are infected and which aren't. Um, Probably closer to home for you guys is microbiology. For the most part, microbiologists don't use facts in the way that cell biologists do, meaning they don't sort specifically. And the reason for that is that, as you guys know, I'm sure, microbes are incredibly diverse, and there are almost never going to be antibodies that target the microbe that you're interested in studying. So what do you do? Uh, for the most part in microbiology, you sort based on non-specific properties, like staining properties from some dye, or granularity, or size. And in the case of an extremely diverse population of microbes, that's going to give you a lot of false positives. It's just not very useful. It just creates a whole lot of other challenges. And for the most part, microbiologists, when they want to get a specific organism out of a sample, they'll do culture. They'll, they'll do some sort of, they'll, they'll know how the thing grows, and they'll try to culture it out and purify it that way. That's extremely limiting because most microbes can't be cultured. Over 99% can't be cultured. So um, it's just, you know, it's a tough problem. However, if you could sort based on, on nucleic acids, based on the sequences that you know to exist within the microbe you're, you're interested in studying, it'd be relatively easy to pull these out. And so in this case, you know, we're collaborating with a guy at Berkeley, John Coates, and the idea is, how do you find the cells that have this ability to metabolize perchlorate? Well, there's no antibody that's going to label those cells. But you can easily sort based on the, the presence of the perchlorate uh, island within the cell genome. And a similar, I'm going to go into a similar application is in virology. For the most part, you can't do facts on viruses. Uh, they're very small, so getting a signal that's bright enough to fax is tough. But in addition, um, they're extremely diverse, even more diverse than microbes, and you're almost never going to have antibodies that label your particular virus 
uh, out of this extremely diverse population. So for the most part, people don't even sort don't sort viruses into that. And in a case like this, it'd be hugely valuable to be able to sort because there's so much diversity. Okay, so what is PACS? Well, PACS is really just the combination of uh, PCR and flow cytometry. And the idea is that PCR is an extremely specific and sensitive way to detect nucleic acids. Uh, and FACTS is a great way to sort, right? So if we can combine these two things together, I now have the ability to detect nucleic acids in a large number of single cells or viruses and sort based on that information. And that's what PACS is. We basically take cells or viruses, we singly encapsulate them in droplets, we do PCR in every droplet interrogating for the nucleic acid of interest, and then we sort to recover the cells or viruses that have them. So the way the process works is we get our population of cells, uh, we encapsulate them in, a, in an emulsion like this, and then we do PCR interrogating for the genes of interest. So in those previous examples, the PCR could be interrogating a stem cell uh, pathway gene, or it could be uh, interrogating for uh, uh, the perchlorate reduction pathway if these were microbes. Okay, so any, any pathway or or gene that you can design a, a PCR assay for, you can detect in this assay. So the point, though, is that only some of these cells will have that nucleic acid, right? So maybe this particular cell is a stem cell like cancer cell, but the rest are not. So only this cell should be expressing those stem cell genes. So only this drop will become fluorescent because only it has the targets for that assay. So now to, to, to recover that cell, I just have to sort to get out uh, the fluorescent drop. And that's the PACS process. And of course, I'll just say from the beginning, we, we don't recover live cells of this. So in the process of doing PCR, we lice the cells and we thermocycle. So we kill the cells. Um, but you, of course, recover the material that was in that lysing. Most importantly, the genomes and transcriptomes of those cells. So if you're doing any kind of bioinformatic analysis, like you know, how does HIV modulate the transcriptome of the host cells, well, you can sort based on HIV DNA and then sequence the transcriptomes to see what the correlation between the presence of HIV DNA is and the transcriptome is. So, so we don't recover live cells. Every method has limitations, uh, but there's still a lot of useful information in those thermocycle placings. Um, so I'll show you the device next that we actually use to do this. Uh, so it consists of pretty much all the modules that I showed you earlier. So this is the cell encapsulation module. If you look carefully, every now and then you'll see a cell coming in and getting encapsulated in a droplet. At this stage, we lyse the cells and we do a, a protease digestion to digest new, uh, pre, uh, proteins that would inhibit PCR. After that, the drops flow through this filter that basically removes any coalesced drops that we don't want to go into our workflow. And then those drops here come in here where you can, if you look closely, you can see these little drops coming through every now and then. They're coming out of a spacer. And we tune the frequency of those drops to match the frequency of these large drops that have a, a PCR buffer that dilutes the lysate. And that was, again, what I was telling you. Um, the reason we dilute, we, we developed this uh, dilution method was that PCR in extremely concentrated lysates is inhibited, very potently inhibited, actually. And one of the ways you overcome it is with proteases, and another way is with dilution. And if you do both, you get a much more efficient reaction. So this, uh, this step where we merge the little drops with these big drops, and you can see them merging here, dilute. Then we mix, we sample a portion, and then we pico-inject the, uh, the RT-PCR 
and I'll say in this, in this device, we only keep about a fifth of the lysate. And this, this was the first device we actually published on the method. Now we have a, a process where we keep 100% of the lysate by sampling essentially the entire drop. So these drops here have cell lysate that's been proteus digested. It's been diluted to, to concentrations that are, are um, compatible with PCR, and I've added my PCR reagent, my RT-PCR reagent. So these drops are ready to go and do PCR and just by thermocycle. And that's what we do, and what we end up with is images like this, or emulsions like this. So this sort of looks like what you would see if you had cells that were labeled with, uh, with antibodies, except these are droplets where the fluorescence is going to be um, stains and Pac-Man uh, acids. So, uh, so I'll just explain. The, the reason we did this experiment was that we wanted to show that we could sort cells based on differences in their expression in genes. Okay, so we, in this case, we took two cells, uh, Raji cells and DD145 cells. These are two different types of cell. Raji cells are like B cells, they're like a blood cell. DD145 cells are an epithelial cell, so they're a model cancer cell, they're from a tumor. Um, and they have different gene expression profiles because they're different cell types. So Raji cells express one set of genes, that gives them their Raji cell phenotype, and DD145 cells express different genes, making them like DD145 cells. So they have different gene expression, and the idea of this experiment was to show that we could find the DU145 cells when we spike them into a Raji cell population by sorting based on genes that we know to be expressed in the DU145 cells. So we're sorting based on the transcriptome to recover the lysate of the DU145 cells. That's what we wanted to do. Um, so uh, to show that we could do that, what we did was we stained the DU145 cells with a, with a calcium violet. And we stain the Raji cells with calcium grade. So these stains serve as sort of internal controls that allow us to know ahead of time what the cell types were in a given drop. Because once we mix these cells together, we're never going to be able to look at the drops and say this had a DUN for five or a Raji, we need to stain. So we stain them first. And then we, we chose a, a, a gene that we know to be expressed in cancer, uh, and that's Vimentin, is a cancer-associated gene. And it's only expressed in DU145 cancer cells. It's not expressed in Raji cells. So by interrogating these cells for vimentin, we can find which in this mixed cell population are expressing vimentin, and therefore those should be the DU145 cells. That was the, that was the theory if this process is, is actually working. So um, we designed a TACMAN assay for vimentin. It's, a, it's this uh, red channel. And this was, you know, that went through, we, we mixed those cells together, we went through the whole PACS workflow, or we went through the, the single cell PCR workflow, and this is what we ended up with. And if you look carefully, you can see already that it's working. So what you see in this image is, you see some pure green droplets. These are Raji, these are droplets that have Raji cells in them that were stained with calcium, calcium green, but there's no red in these green droplets, meaning that there's no vimentin being detected in those droplets that are Raji cell positive. So this is exactly what we would expect, right? I mean, Raji cells don't express vimentin, therefore the droplets that have Raji cells should be green and not red, and that's what we see. Uh, now, on the other hand, you see these purple droplets. So these are droplets that have violet and red, giving you a purple color. So these are drops that had D145 cells and also came up Pac-Man positive for vimentin. And again, that's exactly what we expect. This is not surprising. I mean, it's known that DU145 cells express vimentin, and it's known that Raji cells do not. So, and it's also known that TACMAN PCR is a very specific way to detect 
uh, nucleic acids. So this is basically saying that Pac-Man PCR works on single cells. And that was the whole point, was to show that by doing our process, we could do very robust Pac-Man PCR that would give specific detection of a cell type. So at this point in the pac and this is, of course, you know, just one example of an assay you could make. You could imagine making a variety of probes going after any gene you want. And in many ways, that's another power of PACs over conventional flow cytometry. You know, it's pretty straightforward to make a Pac-Man assay for your target. It's not nearly as straightforward to make an antibody for your target. Antibody generation takes six months to a year, and you hope you get something good. In fact, there's just a review of how most antibodies are crap. Right? <laughs> 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 a lot of noise and science. Um, this is a well-known problem. It's just very difficult to make uniform, high-quality antibodies. But writing DNA sequences is something we can do very, very effectively, and that's all that's required to make TAC-MAN PCR probe. So in many ways, PACS is actually a more straightforward way to detect something. So the next step is, is to sort this emulsion. So we, we run those drops through our sorting devices I showed you previously, and, uh, and we measure their fluorescence. And what you would see, what you see is in the previous example of something like this, and this is this looks very much to anyone that's in flow cytometry as like a flow cytometer scatter plot. This is the hex channel as a function of the uh, violet channel. So this is the vimentin probe fluorescence of so my TACMAN signal. This would be like my antibody signal, but it's a PCR TACMAN signal as a function of my stain. And the double positives are drops that are positive for a cell and also positive for vimentin. And so this is my population that I want to recover. I'd say, well, what is this population here? That's Pac-Man positive, but cell negative. What's going on there? And actually, that is an annoying, a huge annoyance for us. Um, but in some sense, it, it illustrates the power of this method, which it should, what is well known about doing PCR, especially in droplets, is that it has single molecule sensitivity. It's absolutely trivial to detect a single molecule in a droplet by using PCR. And in fact, this is a field called digital PCR. There are now commercial instruments that do digital PCR by counting single molecules. This is our digital PCR signal. This is RNA, vimentin RNA, that was leaked out of uh, probably some dead cells and got encapsulated as single molecules and droplets and seeded a positive TACMAN reaction. So uh, we call this digital background because it's drops that have a single RNA molecule but no cell. And so it's background for us. It's going to be a false positive. Uh, so it's a, it's a major, actually, uh, challenge that we have to always deal with. But it also illustrates the, the sensitivity of this approach um, that is absolutely unsurpassed compared to antibodies. We can easily detect single molecules using a PCR in these droplets. Okay, so we sort out the um, TACMAN positive population. And now, if this assay works, what we expect is that the, the expression of momentum should correlate with the cancer cell being present. And, um, this is another experiment we did where we spiked D145 cells into a different cell type, hex cells. And the point here is it's just that these are, these are playing the role of our background Raji cells, and these are our targets that are expressing momentum. And D145 cells and hex cells have different genomes. Uh, not surprisingly, they're different cell types. They're going to have SNPs. Uh, they're going to be slightly different. And it turns out that at this region in the genome, D145 cells have TAC, and hex cells has G have GAC, okay? So what you would expect if you mix DU145 cells, if you spike them into hex cells, is that you'd see a mixed read at this region. You'd see some T and some G there, because when you sequence that, you're gonna get reads from those cells, right? 
And in fact, if you don't store it, that's exactly what you see. We spike D1 for 5 cells at about 5% into hex cells. And what you see is that uh, it's primarily GAC with a small little hump. You might say there's a little bit of, of TAC in there. And of course, there is because these cells have been spiked in. But it's clearly a mixture. If you pack sort, this is the sequence that you recover. It's strongly T here, uh, which means that we have strongly enriched for the genomes of these cells. So I should probably make like a diagram here, but the point is, is that we interrogated the cells based on their gene expression, on their RNA. And now we're confirming if it's the correct cell type by sequence their genomes, their DNA. So the, the RNA and the genomes are not physically connected, right? They're totally different molecules in the cell and the droplets, but by sorting the droplets based on the presence of those RNAs, we also recover the genomes that are, that are present in those same droplets. And this confirms that when we sort based on expression of the mentin, we enrich for the genomes of these cells. And really all this is saying is that, number one, D145 cells do express mentin, which is not surprising, and that this process works, and that was really the point. Um, and uh, before I move on to the next thing, I just want to say that uh, we can also do this on the genome, so we can invert it. We can sort on the genome to recover the transcriptome. And of course, we can do any combination. We can do RNA to RNA, DNA to DNA, RNA to DNA, and DNA to RNA. And I, I have that data, but I, I didn't include it here for now. Um, so ultimately, if you think about PACS and what it is, really what it is, it's a, it's a way to sort nucleic acids. In the case of PACS that I showed you, we're sorting nucleic acids within cells, and we're recovering all the material that's in that cell. But you can also just sort nucleic acids. Uh, and in essence, you can think of it as faxing DNA. Now imagine if you could fax DNA based on the sequence of the DNA. How powerful would that be? Um, right, for all kinds of enrichment strategies. And that's, of course, exactly what we could do. Um, so I'll, sh I'll show you very quickly how we do that. It actually turns out to be trivial. Um, we take our DNA, where we have, let's say, some particular sequence spiked in or present at a low level in a mixed population, and we just encapsulate it in droplets. Now, sometimes a droplet will contain that target sequence, okay? And if we want to detect that target sequence, all we need to do is design TACMAN probes for that target sequence. So let's say, you know, um, you want to get out the HIV genomes from the human genome. So I give you a bunch of human genomic DNA, some of it has HIV DNA in it, I want to get the molecules out that have HIV DNA. Well, I make, I, I fragment those, th that genome up, right? HIV's there at a small level, and now I, I make a TACMAN assay that's targeting HIV DNA. And when those HIV molecules get encapsulated in a droplet, I'll get a fluorescent signal, and I just sort. And that was, that was the idea. So um, we encapsulated DNA, we did our PCR to detect the ones that have the target, and then we sort. Um, and in this case, we're actually doing, we are sorting for a region of the human, uh, the human uh, uh, genome in a, in a family that has a genetic disorder. Um, this just shows a histogram of droplet fluorescences. You can see I have my TACMAN positives here, my negatives here. This is what the scatter plot looks like. I set my gate here and recover the positives. And in this case, we were pulling down five different regions of the of chromosome 16. And you can see the enrichments so this is just the number of reads that with next gen sequencing as a function of location of the genome. And you can see I have uh, five peaks here uh, where I've enriched for that population. This just shows uh, that we, we, can, we can sort those molecules out and then see them. So we can fax DNA too using PACS. Okay, so the last thing I'll tell you, which is probably what you're all most interested in, is um, a different kind of sorting, which is deep mutational scanning for enzymes. Uh, 
and here the idea is that we're going to do sort of a similar process of doing an assay on a single cell and a droplet, and we're going to sort. But now instead of the assay being PCR, it's going to be a different assay. And in this case, it's going to be an assay for enzyme activity. Um, now, why do you want to do this? And the idea here is that often in synthetic biology, when you're doing enzyme engineering, uh, and in particular when you're doing directed evolution of enzymes, the way the process normally works is you take your, your parent uh, sequence, your parent enzyme, and you want to optimize, you mutate it, and then you screen for the activity that you want. And you take the best ones, right? You, you recover them, and then you mutate them again, and then you screen them again, and you keep doing this. And you, you hope that you take a nice, steady walk through sequence space towards the peak of your activity. Uh, landscape, and sometimes that works, and as you guys I'm sure know, most of the time uh, you take a different walk than you did in the time. Um, now, uh, that's directed evolution, and we do this in the lab, and others do this as well. Uh, the value of doing microfluidics is that we can do lots of single cell assays. We can interrogate tens of millions of individual cells. This now uh, uh, is equivalent to interrogating tens of millions of single enzyme variants. So I can I can screen for direct catalysis tens of millions of variants of an enzyme. And that throughput advantage, if you're doing evolution, is hugely valuable. Uh, well plates, you can do thousands, you know, maybe more with robotics, but you can't really do millions. It's not cost effective. Now, deep mutational scanning is a slightly different variation on the idea. And the idea there is here is that when you do evolution and you, you do the screen to recover the, the active variants, you're actually discarding a lot of information. Uh, there's a lot of information in this unsorted library. The problem is it's not really readable without the sort of codex, the, the sorted library sequences that tell you what's active. So if you have a way to sort these sequences out into active and inactive variants, you can use the active sequences to sort of decode the, the inactive sequences and sort of learn something about the enzyme works. That's sort of the idea. Now, I'll explain in much greater detail how exactly that works. But the goal of this deputational scanning process is to, to sort out the active sequences and the, the, the inactivated or the, the unsorted. And now, by comparing these two data sets, I can learn something about the, uh, how the enzyme works. So it's, more, it's, not, it's not applying this method to make a better enzyme, necessarily. It's more learning something about how the enzyme works that you can engineer. Okay, so the way this, this particular uh, experiment worked is that um, we just chose an enzyme that we thought was interesting. We had a collaborator at JBase, and we thought, why not use their enzyme? And the enzyme we used is uh, beta-glucosidase, which is a cellulose. And we took beta-glucosidase, and we created a library. And we expressed that library as E. coli. Okay, so we now have a tube of you know, hundreds of millions of variants of this, uh, or, or tens of millions of variants of this enzyme uh, expressed in E. coli. And uh, we take those, those E. coli and we encapsulate them individually in droplets with a lysing agent and with the substrate for the, the enzyme assay. So um, inside these E. coli is a particular variant of that enzyme beta glucosidase that was produced through an uh, error-prone PCR. So every droplet should have theoretically a different, uh, a different enzyme with a different ability to catalyze this reaction. So once the cell lyses and releases that enzyme into the solution, the enzyme can begin catalyzing the breakdown of the substrate, which we also include. And this now becomes a very simple assay to find active and inactive variants of this enzyme. So 
of course, an active variant will be able to catalyze the reaction. We have a fluorogenic reaction, so upon catalysis, we see fluorescence in the droplet. And if we have an inactive variant, no catalysis occurs, and we have no fluorescence. Okay? So a simple binary assay, this guy is active, this guy is inactive. This is what the actual raw form of the data looks like. This is an image of droplets where we've encapsulated cells. And you can see some of these droplets are fluorescent, and many of them are non-fluorescent for the wild type beta glucosidase, which is known to be active. Um, just as a control, we did an inactivated variant, and you see no fluorescence. So these droplets have active beta glucosidase. So this is important because this shows that our assay can distinguish between active and inactive, which we're going to use. Uh, the next step is, of course, to sort to recover these guys and get the set of sequences that comprise the active variants. And, and then compare that to the to the unsorted library. And so we flow those drops through our flow cytometer, our flow dropometer, and we, we gate here to recover the active. And this just shows the distribution of drop of fluorescences that we observe, and we set the gate there to recover the fluorescence. After we do that, we get the, the, the DNA out. These were expressed on plasmid. We just sequence them, and we compare that to the unsorted library. So um, here's the, the results of that. So if you test the, uh, the unsorted library in place, what you find is that about 34% of the sequences remain active after uh, random mutagenesis. So I have deactivated most of my enzymes by randomly mutagenizing them, but a small set remain active. And I believe Phil did about two or three mutations per, uh, per variant on average with the error PCR. So you can tune how much mutation there is by tuning the error PCR. After sorting, what I find is almost 100% of my variants are active. So uh, you know, that's not surprising because, of course, my, my, my sorting criterion was, is it active? Right? That's how we designed the assay. Um, does it catalyze the substrate? So not surprisingly, after sorting, we see, uh, we see active. Um, so this is a really interesting plot because it shows, it sort of gets at the heart of what we're looking for here in this deep traditional scanning process. So this is a plot of the... Uh, Frequencies of mutations that we observe, or variants that we observe, for sorting as a function of unsorting. And the interesting population here is this population here. These are variants that are present at a high level before sorting and at a low level after sorting. Okay? These are the guys that broke the enzyme function. So there's a variant there that reduced its ability to catalyze the reaction, and therefore that sequence was thrown out. So this is where the useful information is. This is where the, we find where in this enzyme, if you put the wrong amino acid, break the catalytic activity. And that's going to be important because that's how we're going to interrogate, we're going to scan the enzyme for where the, you know, where the important functional properties of the enzyme come from. And this is just a control showing that if you do it uh, on different days, you, know, you get the same, the same kinds of variants. And that's not surprising because we sorted uh, I think on the order of 10 to the 7 or 10 to the 8th variants, which was something like 100-fold coverage of the of every mutation, every single point mutation in the enzyme. In fact, we almost were able to do double mutants, but not quite, so we didn't include that data. Um, but theoretically, you could look at double, the, inter, the interaction between two mutations if you're interested in like the biophysics and how do your residues interact with one another. That could be very powerful. The problem is you have the combinatorial issue where now you need to look at the square number of variants, and that's a lot even for us. Um, but if you really want to do it, you, you might be able to. 
Uh, okay, so we now ended up with this massive data set, and when we did simple analysis, we were seeing things that made sense. Um, but you know, to actually take the next step and actually say something useful, we needed a tool that would allow us to interrogate this huge set of data that we have no way to like you know, humanly read manually, right? Um, so how do we do that? And we came up with a very, it sounds complicated, the relative entry, but it's actually a very intuitive and simple idea of um, just scanning through the sequences to find the, the, um, the residues and the enzyme that are functional importance. And this is the idea. Uh, entropy, entropy as a physicist defines it, is nothing more than how flat is the distribution. If I give you any distribution, just like I can measure the mean square or the mean, I can measure the entropy. It's just another statistic of the distribution. And entropy is, is the measurement of how flat the distribution so the distribution that's very broad and very flat has high entropy means the system can be in many states. Uh, and that's the definition of entropy. Uh, a distribution with low entropy is one where it's very peaky, where the distribution tends to be narrow. Um, so this is the distribution of amino acid, uh, amino acids present at a particular site. So if you think about one uh, position in the enzyme sequence, one residue, if I do error-prone PCR, in general, I'm going to mutate that position to a bunch of other uh, amino acids. I'm going to mutate the codons, and then those codons are going to be randomly mutated to different amino acids. So if I look at how the uh, amino acids are distributed before sorting, what I would expect is a relatively broad distribution at any given position, because I've done error-prone PCR, which should be very random. Turns out it's not exactly random, and that's why there's bias here. You can't mutate to codons that have two uh, that require two mutations to get to, for example. But it's relatively it's relatively random. Uh, so this is a distribution with high entropy, meaning that that site at that time before sorting can be anything or any of these. After sorting, then if that site has a has a high relative entropy or is a functional importance, then what you would expect is that one amino acid will be will be pulled out. So the relative entropy is nothing more than you know, the entropy change, the relative entropy between these two distributions. This is a high entropy distribution. This is a low entropy distribution. Just standard definition of entropy. The relative entropy is how much the entropy changes in some sense. Um, and it kind of uh, counterintuitively, high relative entropy is a case where it goes from high entropy to low entropy. Okay, so this is this would be an indicator of high relative entropy. And you don't have to necessarily understand entropy, but the point here is that this relative entropy is a way to pick out which which positions in an enzyme are functionally important. So in this case, I had before sorting every possible you know, amino acid there, and after sorting, I could only have this one amino acid. So this, this was functionally important because the enzyme could not be active and could not survive our screen without having that amino acid. A low relative entropy is just where the amino acid distribution doesn't shift at all. Before sorting, I can have any amino acid. After sorting, I can have any amino acid. Well, what that means is the other side doesn't care what's there, right? So you can put whatever you want there, and it's not going to matter. So this simple statistic, relative entropy, is a way now to turn this extremely complex data set into something that, as humans, we can actually interpret. Um, and immediately when you plot it, you see something very interesting. So. Uh, this is the, uh, the relative entropies for exposed and buried residues. And what we see is that, in general, uh, exposed residues have a lower relative entropy 
that varied residues. And of course, this should make intuitive sense to anyone that studied enzymes and proteins in general. You know, if you mutate something in the bulk inside of an enzyme or a protein, you're much more likely to affect its three-dimensional structure than if you mutate something in clocking around on the outside. And that's essentially what this is telling But we can go much farther. So beta-glucosidase has been crystallized, so we have a structure for this protein, for this enzyme, and we have the sequence for the enzyme. So we can just map, we, have, we basically have coordinates of where in 3D space that thing is, and where in our relative entropy spaces. So we can just map relative entropies onto the 3D structure, and this is what you see. Um, and immediately you can sort of see that indeed we have lots of blue that is low relative entropy on the outside, and as I go into the enzyme, I start seeing a lot uh, more red, and that's telling me it's, those, those things are starting to be more important, so I can't mutate things inside as easily as I can mutate things outside. You also have these regions that are very red, and, uh, and these are pointing out regions of the enzyme that are incredibly important to function, meaning you can't change them at all with the enzyme still being functional. And it's sort of interesting which ones came up there. Um, so these, this is the, the, uh, the uh, catalytic domain of the enzyme, and not surprisingly, it has a high relative entropy. So, you know, of course, if you change the catalytic side of an enzyme, you're much more likely to break it than you are to allow it to, be, uh, to sustain its activity. So these are very red. Um, this one uh, is forming salt bridges uh, with a nearby residue, so we think this is structurally important. And this one is interesting. Um, it's sort of, you know, what's going on here, it's not clear why this is important. Now, but we tested all of these in bulk, and we found that, indeed, these are the relative entropies that we measured in our screen are exactly accurate. You cannot mutate these. And so we're, we're wondering what goes on here. We don't know. But interestingly, um, well, so this is the relative entropy plotted along the sequence of the enzyme. You can see these large oscillations are sort of large structures of the enzyme, like beta sheets and uh, alpha um, helices. And I just want to get to this region. So this this mutation on the outside that I was showing you before that we don't make we don't understand is actually in a loop of beta glucosidase that is not well resolved in the protein uh, structure because so this is all beta glucosidases. Um, that have been found. And actually, the parent that we started out with is one of these. I don't actually remember which one it is. Um, this is all other beta glucosidases. And every uh, member here has this variant in it. Whereas none of these are not, this variant is not shared in the rest of the family. And the reason I like to show this is that this really gets at the heart of what our demutational scanning process is good for. So, um, People do analysis of the sequence record to find which regions are conserved in an enzyme, right? So you can just take an enzyme that's evolved and you can compare the sequences and see which regions are conserved. Those are the important regions, right? Um, well, that's sort of true. It's true for the family averaged together, right? But in fact, any given instance of the family is not necessarily representative of the average of the family. Every instance is unique. And it might turn out, and it almost always does, that each family, each, uh, each instance of the family has unique constraints that have, have uh, uh, constrained how it's evolved. And this is, seems to be an example of that. This residue, which you can't change, is present in this family, so evidently something evolved to create the structure that is important for catalysis somehow um, that is not present in the rest of the family. And the point is that if you wanted to make beta glucosidase better, you're not going to start with the average of the family. You're going to start with one instance of the family. Right? You're going to start with that, say. 
And what matters to you as the enzyme engineer and optimization is what's important for that enzyme, that variable. And that's something you can't find by looking at the whole family and averaging together. That gives you sort of too global a perspective, right? You need to scan more densely in the nearby neighborhood of the variant you're actually starting with. And that's, I would say, where the two methods are complementary. Looking at the sequence record is good for getting sort of aggregate properties of the enzyme as a whole, but if you actually want to do engineering and make it better, you're better off starting with one instance and then scanning it densely with our approach. Okay. Um, so uh, I'm going to wrap up now. Um, so my lab, as you can see, we're doing lots of high-throughput applications. Um, I only talked about uh, three projects, but we have a lot of other stuff going on. Uh, I'm happy to talk about that individually with you if you'd like. Um, uh, and uh, just to thank my collaborators, the lab, and uh, my funding, and uh, thank you for your attention. I'll take any questions you have now. Thanks. So we're not showing some electrical force that that working without, or uh, no, no, we use the electrical force. It was not pictured; uh, it was off screen. Um, there are devices for diluting or merging or adding reagents that don't use electrodes. Um, they, you sort of don't want to do them if you can get away with it, because while it can work, you want it to always work. And uh, to make that work, you need to carefully tune the surfactant concentration so that you can get instability when the droplet is new interface is being created, but stability when interfaces are even formed. That's a very tricky balance, particularly when you're putting things inside of the droplets that interfere with the, the stability of the surfactant. So um, we found, we've tried all other methods, and we found that you always want to use electrodes when you can because it just works every time, no matter what you put in the droplets. And maybe something a little bit related, you had that image where you were removing coalesced droplets. Was that because there was a component to which you're adding to some of the droplets so it's destabilizing them a little bit? What do you mean by moving coalesced droplets? Um, I thought I thought you had a uh, one of the graphics showed uh, sort of a, a sorter to remove coalesced droplets. Oh right, yes, yes. Which I, I don't see that typically in the engineered emulsions. I was wondering why it was necessary. Yeah, it's necessary because the facts are is that an emulsion is an incredibly Unstable, you could say metastable, but it's a, it, thermodynamically it's extremely far out of equilibrium. The equilibrium state is one droplet of the lowest surface energy. So it's sort of amazing that emulsions exist at all because there's a massive thermodynamic driving force to coalesce everything. Um, so, of course, surfactants uh, greatly slow that down, almost to the point where you can make emulsions that are almost permanently stabilized. But the facts are that they're never permanent, and in particular, when you do things to emulsions, when you heat them, when you flow them, you always get some coalescence. It's very difficult to avoid. So that filter that we developed was a way to trap droplets based on size, and I didn't really go into it, but it has large regions where big drops are very happy because they can be spherical. Small drops don't care because they're spherical no matter what, and so the small drops tend to flow easily through those regions and big drops get trapped. And it's just a way to clean up our data and we really want single-cell PCRs. We don't want mixed-cell PCRs. That'll give us false positives. So um, that was just a, an engineering trick to remove the large drops. Yeah. So I uh, just clarify some stuff about high relative entropy. Um, if you start from an unsorted library and then you go that has high entropy and you go to low entropy, does that mean that those 
that's normally where you just get a lot of synonymous SNPs after you, or synonymous mutations or something, or it stays exactly the same as it was. So the relative entropy is, is computed based on the amino acid sequence. <coughs> so we only look at changes in the amino acid distribution. So the amino acids have to change in order to yield a change in relative entropy. We're not interested in characterizing the, C, the DNA sequence changes. We're interested in characterizing the changes of the amino acids. Oh, so maybe uh, just to ask a better question would be um, when you start with your unsorted library, they all are really distributed, the random. When you sort it, you get all one type of uh, um, residue. Mm -hmm. uh, is that usually the same residue as what would be found in your uh, background strain? And then... Oh, if, if you, yeah, I... Um, I believe the answer to that is yes, but Phil would be, you know, I'm the concepts guy, Phil is the guy that actually did the work. He can tell you exactly what the residues were. And if you get a base change, or a uh, residue change, you get two peaks, right? Uh, the original one, because it's still active, mm -hmm. and the new one? Is that normally what you see? Uh, okay, yeah, no, I, so, um, you're, are you asking, can you, can you rescue the activity by mutating to a different amino acid from the wild type? I'm more asking about uh, is low entropy always it goes to one like it makes one. No, 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 not necessarily. Entropy, entropy is the calculated for the entire distribution, regardless of any number. If you have as many peaks, any distribution can be can be turned into a, a number of entropy, no matter how many peaks it has. The more the more peaky it is, meaning the more it coalesces onto one peak, the higher the entropy, the lower the entropy will be, and the higher the relative entropy. But you could theoretically have a distribution that has five peaks or two peaks. They'll all have different entropies, and therefore different relative entropies. Uh, but the entropy doesn't care. It's just a, a computation from the distribution. Yeah. Um, did you look into applying different stresses to see how the relative entropy... Yeah, absolutely. I didn't go into that in the no. paper. Sorry? Yeah, yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, so um, uh, in the paper, we, we present that data, mm -hmm. so you can see it. Um, one of the powerful things that we can do that you can't do by doing multiple sequence alignments, which is when you just look at the natural sequences of the enzyme through evolution, is that we can screen under any conditions we want. So how, how far out have you gone in that space? Yeah, so um, in the paper, we did a heat, a heat shock. So we uh, heated the enzyme for, I think it was five minutes at 65 and then did the catalysis measurement. The idea was to interrogate for residues that maintain high stability. Um, but literally, anything that's compatible with a drop of workflow can be screened for. So one of the things we wanted to do is also high product concentration to see to uh, evolve for higher uh, yield. Uh, another is uh, high ionic liquid uh, concentrations, which ionic liquids are these funny solvents used to dissolve cellulose, and they're bad for enzymes, typically. So the nice thing is that this is an in vitro screen. It's not an in vivo screen. So anything that you can do in a tube that's compatible with our droplets can be applied here. You can do your evolution or your deep mutational scanning. The deep mutational scanning is good when you want to know which residues are important for this trait. Um, so more like the, the, the mechanics of how the enzyme works. But you could also do evolution under those conditions. We only did heat, but uh, we talked a lot about doing the others. Just a lot of work.
So I can see the power of applying stress, right? Um, but even that, there still is a digital screen, right? It's positive or minus. So have you seen this technology to become more a gradient type of thing? You know, yeah, you can. And so just Phil and I actually talked a lot about this early on. We can do uh, quantitative measurement. So as you, you may have seen, you may remember, in the beginning I showed the distribution of fluorescence is a fairly broad distribution. We drew a threshold to sort anything above this value into one buff. So that's a binary screen. It, was, it is active or inactive. And the reason that we did that was that we wanted to know what, uh, you know, just what inactivates and deactivates. But if you want to see what enhances, you might want to set that threshold at different levels. And you can do that by, just like they do in flow cytometry, sorting into different wells, where each well is an activity bin, right? So medium, high, or low, medium, and high, and so on, or as many bins as you want. And then, of course, you'll capture all the sequences that give you low. All the sequences that give you medium, all that give you high, and theoretically there's a lot more information there. We just, we just didn't do it, but it is actually trivial to do. Very easy to do. Yes? Um, your detection system for the DNA, did you call it the TACMAN? There's a TACMAN. Okay. How, how specific? It's targeted toward one piece of DNA. Yes. Does it recognize the whole piece or just parts of it? So how specific is it? Could there be some broadness to what they did? Yeah. So um, uh, in general, the reason people use TACMAN is because it's extremely specific. Uh, TACMAN... In addition to your PCR primers, it also uses a fluorescent probe that enables sort of in the middle of your amplicon. So you have, like they say, you have two le levels of specificity. You have the specificity of the primers, you know, does it produce an amplicon? And actually, we can sort on that too using like either green or cyber green. So you can just use a standard PCR and sort on that too. Now, when you have TACMAN, it has to produce an amplicon, and the TACMAN probe needs to anneal into the amplicon in order to give the first signal. So you get two levels of specificity. And that's really good for doing um, PCRs when you can have a lot of non-specific products, which often happens in PCRs, particularly when you have a lot of different nucleic acids present, like you do here. Um, so it's extremely specific. How specific depends a lot on what your target is, how good your probes are designed, how messy the PCR is. But I can just say, generally, the reason TACMAN was developed was because it's much more specific than standard PCR. Another reason why we use TACMAN is that it can be multiplex. So um, intercalating stains like Cyber or, um, or Evergreen, they turn on whenever products are produced, irrespective of the product sequence. But TACMAN will only turn on when that specific product is produced. So you could use TACMANs with different colors, interrogating different products to, to sort based on multiple genes akin to labeling each cell with each with, with two or three antibodies. And in fact, we've done three TACMAN probes at a time in a single cell. Yes? Just curious, what is about the largest library size that you would be comfortable interrogating with these techniques? Um, probably about 100 million. You might be able to push that. Um, but in the end, the, the facts becomes limiting. You know, close to maybe you get 10 kilohertz, but even at 10 kilohertz, uh, you're talking hours of fax time to sort of 100 million. Looks like that again. Yeah.